Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. I wanted a career in which everything would matter. Because I'm motivated by something bigger than myself. So I joined the CIA. And now I help protect our families, our friends, and every fellow American. Here, my abilities contribute to our mission. Agency professionals have extraordinary integrity and exceptional talents. And every day, we do work that's incredibly important. Find out how everything you do in your career can impact our nation. Visit cia.gov slash careers to learn more and apply. And now for something completely different. Hello and welcome in to another episode of the Gig Cocky Podcast, part of the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. I'm your host, Pearson Fowler, and we got a great show for you all today. Will Helms coming up with a lot of big numbers after South Carolina's convincing 24-7 win over Kentucky, ending their five-game skid and getting South Carolina, I guess, to the bye week on a on a good note i'll just say it like that they're limping in in some ways at two and three much worse than i think a lot of people expected but at least going in on a win having to go to athens the next week there will be some positive momentum there before we get to will i want to remind everyone listening to rate review subscribe share this podcast with your friends and for those of you that have already rated reviewed subscribed things like that we really appreciate it because that does help us a lot the numbers have been great and we want to keep doing more of that we want to keep giving you guys exactly what it is that you want to hear um, and we welcome all feedback which is why it's important for y'all to review it as well we had somebody on message boards i don't remember if it was the thread for i don't think it was the thread for the podcast but somebody on, on one of the message boards on gamecock central mentioning that i sounded ignorant and arrogant which is fine i totally get the arrogant thing um, but the ignorant one that's also a fine criticism but just you know give me specific examples of where i need to improve my foundation of knowledge so that i can improve that and not sound ignorant in the future and i hit the guy back to ask for something specific and he never responded. So if you leave feedback, leave specific feedback so that we can actually get better. I know that sounds sarcastic, and it is a little bit, but we also, in all seriousness, do want to get better and do better and give you guys more of what it is that you want. So let us know what exactly that is. All right, so as I mentioned, South Carolina coming away with a dominating 24-7 to win. It was 24-0 for the majority of the game. Kentucky got its only points of the day and 84 of its 212 total yards on their very last drive. It was essentially garbage time, but a start-to-finish, wire-to-wire victory for South Carolina, led by the defense, a defense that people had asked questions about throughout most of this year after giving up two long drives against North Carolina that left a bad taste in people's mouths and after giving up a lot of points in a career day and yardage for Tua against Alabama, 34 points against Missouri doesn't look very good on the scoreboard, but through all of that, I had encouraged people to pump the brakes. The North Carolina game, with the exception of two drives that were both terrible, and you don't say those don't count. Those do count, and those are the reasons that South Carolina lost the game, lost the lead. And you can say the offense should have done more, but the defense absolutely should not have given up those two long drives. But other than that, the rest of the game, Carolina was 
pretty good or about as good as expected. The Missouri game, the 34 points on the scoreboard bad, but it was really only 20 points by the defense. Two of them were literally defensive touchdowns, so there's no way you can put that on the defense unless you're somebody that has to come up with how to score defense and special teams in fantasy football, in which case it doesn't matter who scores those points or at what point in the game they come, but that is a rant for another time. The Alabama game, you kind of put that in a category of its own because they're Alabama and because they wipe the floor with everyone and because they have probably the best receiving core and all of college football, maybe the entire history of college football. And you look at what Alabama's done to the rest of their schedule. It's not like they've taken it easy on anybody. They scored 59 against Ole Miss. I guess they only scored uh, 42 against Duke, but another 52 against New Mexico State. The 47 against South Carolina, 49 against Southern Miss. So Carolina holding them to, I guess, the low end of their average and the only other SEC opponent. They hung 59 on the Rebels. So by no stretch of the imagination was that Carolina's worst defensive performance. But all that to say, the good advanced metrics that Will Helms has told us about, the impressive season by Javon Kinlaw, J.C. Horn continued to play well, the development of some younger players, specifically Jamie Robinson, all those things that appeared to be happening on the field really uh, really kind of coalesced nicely on Saturday. And again, this absolutely suffocating defensive performance in which Kentucky didn't convert a third down until midway through the third quarter. And they were held to 2 of 15 on third downs for the game, 0 of 2 from fourth down. I mentioned 212 total yards, 84 of which came on that last scoring drive. It was just dominating in every way, shape, and fashion. And some of the response that I've seen in the aftermath as well, that Kentucky team wasn't very good. You know, Sawyer Smith, who is their backup quarterback already, was a little bit banged up. And all of those things are true. But we sit here at five games into the season, and you you can't dismiss every single game and say there's nothing to be learned from this. I know it's it seems like it seems like games like Kentucky in a dominant performance like that, in which their quarterback seemed completely ill-equipped to be starting an SEC football game, it's easy to say, well, how much did we actually learn from that? And the answer is a lot. We learned a lot about the defense, and we learned a lot about the offense, which I'll get to in just a second. But this Kentucky offensive line was, I think, considered the strength of this team coming into the game. Terry Wilson, Sawyer Smith, neither of those guys are big game breakers. Their job, again, even if it was Terry Wilson in there, his job would have just been to not lose the game. For Sawyer Smith, the job was to not lose the game, and unfortunately, he didn't do that. But part of the reason that he was forced into those situations where he kind of cost Kentucky the game, you know, throwing an interception, having a fumble, just missing a lot of passes is because Kentucky was playing from behind for the whole game, which again is credit to Carolina. And I'll get to the offensive part of this in just a second, but they had 34 pass attempts on the day compared to 28 runs. Part of that is because, like I said, they were trailing, but they weren't really, for the most part, they weren't trailing by so much that you felt like they had to just throw the ball because they were trying to make up a 24-point deficit for the entire game. For the most part, it was 10, and then 17 at some point in the third quarter. And then the last touchdown really kind of put it away. But even to that point, Kentucky was throwing the football a lot more than you know Stoops wanted to throw it. He was very annoyed last week when Sawyer Smith threw it 41 times, and Sawyer Smith finished this game 11 of 32, 90 yards, zero touchdowns, one interception. And it was because Carolina was doing such a good job defending the run, taking that away, and forcing Kentucky to pass it. Again, it wasn't just because Carolina was leading. It was because their running backs had uh, Asim Rose, 10 carries, 33 yards. Cavassier Smoke, 2 carries for 7 yards. So just over 3 yards a carry for both of those guys, but 12 carries and 40 yards is not what you're looking for when you're trying to establish the run, which is how Kentucky has beaten Carolina 
the last five years, or four of the last five years, I should say. Carolina won that rushing margin 247 to 115, averaged five and a half yards a carry to Kentucky's just four. Uh, Christopher Rodriguez actually was their leading rusher, six carries for 65 yards, a lot of that on a 44-yard run there towards the end of the game. Uh, Lynn Bowden, their second leading rusher in terms of yardage, six carries, 44 yards out of the Wildcat, which was the only time Kentucky had anything resembling rhythm offensively. But this defensive line for Carolina is for real. Again, to go back to what I said earlier, it looked like it, and there were flashes at times. It looked like Aaron Sterling had really taken a step. It looked like Javon Kinlaw was every bit of the hype that Carolina fans thought he was last year and coming into this season. And then the rest of the guys have filled out those other spots as smoothly as humanly possible. The the loss of Keir Thomas at the beginning of the year, who was a borderline starter with Kobe Smith, I didn't know how much of an impact that would have on the team. Kobe Smith has done an excellent job, not to mention Rick Sandage, building on a good season last year in his freshman year. J.J. Anagbare and a guy that's been playing like I don't want to say like limited snaps but like 30 40 ish snaps a game has done well and that role Zach Pickens who only played 12 snaps on Saturday continues to to be good and productive as a freshman whenever he's in the game so all those guys have filled in in a way that's uh, you know basically as good as we could have reasonably expected that's been helping the linebackers I think TJ Brunson and Ernest Jones have I think according to the metrics TJ Brunson not having a great season Ernest Jones having a pretty solid season Sherrod Green has had a better season and I think a lot of that is because of the improved play on the defensive line one of the things Will Muschamp cited last year as part of Carolina's inability to defend the run or their struggles at times to defend the run is that the defensive linemen weren't eating up the blockers enough and they were getting pretty much unmolested up to the second and third level putting 300 pound offensive linemen on smaller linebackers and members of the secondary and that's how teams were busting big plays in the running game but now those defensive linemen are a little bigger a little more athletic a little better I guess more sound in their assignments uh, whatever it is probably a combination of all those things they're doing a better job of keeping those blockers off of the linebackers so those guys can come down into the box and make plays, and we've seen them do that. And the improved pass rush on the defensive line has obviously made it a lot easier on the defensive backs who have given up their share of big plays, but it isn't because teams are just running 60 yards down the field and catching long balls over the top. When Carolina's given up big plays in the secondary, it's been catch and run, which is a result of a missed tackle has nothing to do with Carolina secondary quote-unquote getting beat or at least not in a coverage sense and a lot of that is because Carolina's done a a lot better job of making opposing quarterbacks uncomfortable even Tua Carolina got to him a couple of times in the first quarter made him uncomfortable whenever he sat in the pocket for more than two or three seconds and four sacks against Kentucky was again sort of the the next step of that in a nice uh, a nice coalescence of all of the improved parts of the defense that we've seen throughout the course of the season. And like I said, it doesn't mean nothing. Sure, Sawyer Smith is probably the worst quarterback that South Carolina is going to see all year. The first or the worst FBS quarterback that Carolina will see all year. But you still have to go out there and make him look like that. You have to take advantage of that. So from the game planning perspective, again, it worked very well. And then in terms of the execution, it was great. How many times have Carolina fans seen some nobody quarterback come in and just absolutely light it up either because Carolina didn't have the right game plan or they underestimated a quarterback or whatever it is. There was a stretch there, and I think that was I think that was the, the John Hoke year, which was a very, very bad year for South Carolina fans and, and members of the South Carolina secondary. But where nobody quarterbacks come in and just absolutely light it up, Carolina is at least now at the point where that's not happening. I think people were initially perturbed by what they saw from Sam Howell in the season opener and he's had his ups and downs he got benched for a short time in the Wake Forest game a couple of weeks ago but I think by and large what we've seen is that's a guy that's 
a really solid quarterback as a freshman that has shown a lot of gumption. He's not afraid late in games. We just saw him this weekend lead a game-tying drive against Clemson in the waning moments of a game, which they only lost because they went for two, which, by the way, was definitely the correct call to uh, go for that. But um, before I get off track, I'll, I'll just say Sam Howell has been impressive as a freshman. So, again, I don't want to like hold that against Carolina. You need to, They needed to do, be better in that game. They weren't. That's fine. But this is a scenario where they faced a quarterback and an offense that was overmatched based on how the defense was playing. They took advantage of that, and they proved that this defense at least has the horses to dominate inferior opponents. Now it's just a matter of getting up for the big games against better offenses, and that will be the next step that needs to be taken. Whether or not they can remains to be seen. Uh, Georgia, a week from Saturday, will be... The first, uh, I guess the next good test of that, they're not as explosive offensively as Alabama. You'll, you'll probably have to put it in a similar basket, and then you'll have to look to like the Florida and Texas A&M games to get a real idea of what this team does against a above-average, maybe, offense is fair to characterize it. Uh, Missouri was probably a good example, and that was a, a solid performance, like I said, just 20 points allowed. Um, but there are going to be a couple other opportunities where they're going to really be tested. And if they if they pass the test, like they did against Missouri, like they did against Kentucky, like hopefully they do against Florida and Texas A&M, it will be up to the offense to hold up their end of the bargain. And they did just enough on Saturday to do that. Scoring 24 points probably should have been more like 35 or 38. And fortunately, like I said, the defense was good enough, and... Kentucky's offense was bad enough that it didn't really matter, but this game was, uh, I guess, another example of, and may, and hopefully not, but maybe a reinforcement of some bad habits that Carolina seems to be building offensively that are going to get them into trouble in games where even if their defense dominates or plays well, because they played well but didn't dominate against Missouri, it's not going to be enough. If Carolina puts in this kind of offensive performance, even if the defense plays great, they're not going to beat Florida, they're not going to beat Texas A&M, and those games, you know, maybe on the road against Tennessee, um, uh, maybe App State, like those aren't going to be maybe even as much of a cakewalk as this Kentucky game was just because none of those teams have quarterbacks that are quite as inept as Sawyer Smith. And I hate to pile on the guy because I, I feel bad for him because he clearly just doesn't need to be out there because he's not ready for the big stage. But, yeah, I mean, he was he was truly, truly terrible. A QBR of 3.6 for the game. But Carolina was inefficient again on third down, 5 of 15. They struggled to throw the football, 15 of 27 for 140 yards for Ryan Helensky. No touchdowns, no interceptions, which I guess is one thing that you look at and say that's good. He wasn't asked to do too much this game, and all, basically all he needed to do is not turn the football over, not lose the game, and he did that. But I think you'd like to see still a little bit more. He was missing some of those throws that he missed against Missouri. He hit some other ones. It wasn't the Alabama game or the Charleston Southern game. It was a little bit better than, than the Missouri game, and I think you want to see more progress in that direction because he's going, like I said, he's going to need to, to be able to do more. He's not going to just be asked to not lose games in some of these 50-50 games or you know, 40-60 or 30-70 games where Carolina's not going to be favored but also have a realistic shot of winning like Florida, A&M. I mean, they're still going to be heavy underdogs, probably double-digit underdogs in that game going to College Station, but Texas A&M has looked pretty underwhelming this year, so I think that's one that you circle as a potential upset because Georgia's not a potential upset. Clemson's not a potential upset. Right now it's Florida and A&M if Carolina's looking at getting one of those games back that they lost and they shouldn't have early in the season in, in North Carolina and at Missouri. But it's it's got to start with Ryan Holinsky and a willingness to take more shots down the field. Now I will say I, I liked that the coaching staff took a few shots in the third quarter as they sort of went for the jugular and just didn't connect on them. 
for one reason or another, but they need to do more of that. Ryan Helensky, like I said, 15 to 27, 140 yards. That's 5.2 yards per attempt, and that's that's got to be higher. Even if Carolina's missing their shots, which they did on Saturday, they need to take them, I think, earlier and more often because Carolina's not always going to run block that well. They're not always going to get that good of a performance out of Feaster and Dowdle, although that is becoming a pretty regular occurrence. Those two guys combined for 30 carries, 209 yards um, I guess just rushing. There were some receiving yards added in there as well. And three rushing touchdowns. Excellent performance. And an excellent performance by South Carolina's offensive line run blocking. We'll have Will Helms give us the, the numbers in the actual PFF breakdown of both the running backs and the offensive line here in just a couple of minutes. But Carolina can't always win football games that way. It's good to establish the run. They need to establish the run. They did a good job of it. That should be the first priority of games going forward, but they're going to need to take more shots, and Ryan Helensky's going to need to be better. He's going to need to be closer to what we saw against Alabama, and I'm not really counting Charleston Southern, but at least just in terms of his confidence delivering passes downfield. It doesn't have to be a 40-yard fade, but just throwing a crossing route 15, 20 yards down the field. There were a couple of times when it seemed like, even if he wasn't like missing the throw, there were guys that were open. So, again, going back to just kind of progression of him as a quarterback, as a freshman, growing more comfortable in the system, more comfortable in the games, not only making the throws, but making some of those progressions and getting to his second and third reads, which he did well against Charleston Southern. He did well against Alabama, not as well against Missouri. And there were some other extenuating circumstances in there and not as well um, against Kentucky, at least based on just going back and watching a lot of those series again on offense for Carolina. So that's the only thing that I would say I'm concerned is, is still a, a conservative tendency on offense. And, and by the way, being conservative and being rewarded against Kentucky is really what I'm scared of in terms of this coaching staff and this offensive staff being rewarded for a philosophy that I feel like is problematic and has hurt them in the past against Florida, against North Carolina. You can probably find other examples, but being conservative is rarely the answer. It was here. So I hope that doesn't reinforce that habit to South Carolina's detriment down the road. But hopefully it won't matter if Ryan Helinski starts to feel a little bit more comfortable, starts to look a little bit more like he did against Alabama, and then they feel a little bit more comfortable opening up the playbook, taking a few more shots, and, and giving some giving teams some varied looks. And I guess the next opportunity to see that will, like I said, be a week from Saturday because Carolina is not going to beat Georgia if they just dink and dunk and if Ryan Helinski is averaging 5.2 yards per attempt. They'll need to run the ball about as well. Rico Dowdle, 6.8 yards per carry. Tavian Feaster, 7.1 yards per carry. That'll need to be the same. The defensive performance will need to be the same. It will just be up to, again, the play calling, the 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 play calling philosophy even, too. Just, again, the aggression, the willingness to take some shots, to take some chances. Um, I mean, it'll take a perfect storm. I'm not going to go into the whole Georgia thing right now. I'll save that for next week. But all in all, good, very good performance from South Carolina. Not great. Not quite comprehensive, but close. And I think most of all, if you're a Carolina fan, you're just happy that it's not six losses in a row against Kentucky. All right, coming up, Will Helms to tell us if the numbers match what we think we saw with our eyes on Saturday. So here's Will. All right, on the line with me now for his weekly segment, Will Helms, who fortunately feeling a little bit under the weather, so I won't keep you too long, Will, but I appreciate you letting us take uh, some of your afternoon while you're trying to nap and get better. I'm just trying to talk about football, but there are a lot of things to talk about. South Carolina ended its five-game losing streak to Kentucky in spectacular fashion defensively, not quite so spectacular offensively, but you uh, tweeted out earlier that you have 
some really eye-popping stats for one South Carolina freshman who had, I guess, the best game of his career so far? Yeah, uh, Jamie Robinson uh, kind of really continued what he's been doing quietly this year. He just did it in, uh, <clears throat> especially with uh, Jamias Williams gone, in more snaps and in a little bit more of a, um, I guess, pronounced way um, over the weekend. So, yeah, he definitely he was one of the ones that um, we'll talk about. And, um, you know, the PFF numbers will show that, you know, he played really, really well. I was intrigued to see that only five South Carolina defensive backs got snaps. I figured with Jamias Williams uh, choosing to redshirt and then transfer that there would be more snaps for guys like John Dixon, who actually only saw the field in special teams. He didn't even see it as uh, as a defensive back. It was just J.C. Horn, Mukwamu, R.J. Roderick, Jamie Robinson, and uh, J.T. Ebay. And, I mean, played great. Now, granted, they were playing a guy in Sawyer Smith who's probably the worst quarterback in the SEC right now, but, you know, didn't give up anything easy for him, you know, or, or, or anything for him. Yeah, a lot of that does have to do with um, Kentucky playing more of you know, 12 personnel with two uh, tight ends on the field at a time or, you know, two backs or something like that, um, whereas a lot of teams will play, you know, play more three and four wide sets. Um, but they really were finding success with that third linebacker on the field. Uh, Sherrod Green played well. Um, and really before even Jamias transferred, um, this was kind of in the works that we kind of saw um, by snap count over the past few weeks that um, South Carolina would be playing um, kind of those five a little bit more than normal. Yeah, and then on the other side, I guess the defense, or, or I guess up front, kind of on the other side from where the defensive backs are, it was another great performance from uh, Javon Kinlaw. DJ Wanham added three sacks. Aaron Sterling had a sack, just another all-around outstanding performance from that entire unit. Uh, which one of the defensive linemen graded out the highest this weekend? So it was actually um, that graded out the highest would be Aaron Sterling um, with a 76 overall. Um, Kobe Smith graded out well. Um, Javon Kinlaw graded out as the 10th best player on South Carolina's defense. And if you watched that game, um, saw that Javon Kinlaw was all over the place uh, yet again. It's actually his worst game grade. Um, in the last six games, um, dating back to the Clemson game was the last time he scored below his 70, um, which, if you hear me talk about game grades, a 70 is a very good game grade. So it's more that Javon Kimmel has just been all over the place all season than, you know, he poured, played poorly um, Saturday night. But, um, you know, a lot of the other guys stepped up. Uh, Sterling played well. Uh, Juan, I miss Wanham here. They list him as a linebacker because um, he played a lot of the, of the butt positions, stood up a lot. Um, he graded out as a 76.1. Um, Kobe Smith at 72.3. Um, Danny Fennell, 65.8. Um, Zach Pickens graded out well again, um, 64.3. And um, really, all the guys that got into the game on the defensive line um, graded well. Um, Kingsley Inigbare didn't grade that well. Um, he had a couple plays where they could have called a, a holding penalty against him or something like that, which you know could have boosted his grade a little bit. Um, but over the course of the season, he's played well, too. Um, so South Carolina's defensive front has been really good all season. Yeah, we've talked about this, I mean, pretty much every week, just how good the line has been, at least, you know, according to our eye test and according to your numbers, but it hasn't necessarily been borne out because Alabama scored 47 and Missouri put 34 on the scoreboard, even if only 20 of that was allowed by the defense. And North Carolina did what they did on those two long drives, but this was really kind of all of those things that we saw coming together. And it surprised me a little bit just because I knew that Kentucky wanted to run the football. You know, they have a couple of decent backs and Smoke and Rose. And, I, you know, I figured when they 
went into the Wildcat. They actually did have, um, you know, some some productivity out of the Wildcat. I thought we would see a little bit more of that. And the offensive line, at least according to the metrics, was a strength for Kentucky coming into the game, and Carolina just absolutely dominated them. Yeah, it was um, definitely one of those things. I, I talked a little bit about on Gamecock Central this morning about how, um, especially in the grading system, the defense needs to be more of a complete team effort for you to kind of see it um, translate to, you know, differences in points, whereas the offense can be more influenced by one or two players. You see it all the time. You know, if Brian Edwards has a great game. He can be the only guy on the offense that has a great game and account for, you know, two or three touchdowns and completely change the momentum of the game, whereas um, we've seen it this year with Javon Kinlaw just having dominant games. But if you're one of two or three defensive players that are having dominant games, you can see, you know, issues in the secondary or issues on the back end or issues at linebacker really show up um, and kind of hurt hurt the defense as a whole more so than, you know, having – you really need that, you know, complete team effort to see it translate into points. And we saw that Saturday with um, some of the grades um, on South Carolina's defense. I guess we haven't talked about the linebackers just yet. I imagine their their grades were fine because they were a big part of why South Carolina held Kentucky to, to very, very few rushing yards. Sherrod Green, you mentioned, continues to play well. And I, I think some of that, like you mentioned, was – the personnel that Kentucky was using, the fact that they had two tight ends in there a lot trying to, I mean, I guess theoretically trying to run the ball, so it made sense for Carolina to be more in the 4-3 than the 4-2-5, but I think his improved play has also been you know, a factor in him playing more, not just sort of personnel decisions, but did the linebackers grade out as well as the defensive line? They, they really did, actually. In some cases, they graded out, graded out better. Um, Ernest Jones had that highest grade on the defense at 79 point. Uh, 79.7 with a coverage grade of 80.9. Uh, both of those are really, really good. Um, TJ Brunson graded out well. He was at a 71.2. Shrug uh, Green graded out in between them at a 73.8. Uh, really a complete game from uh, South Carolina's front seven, which, I, again, I wrote on Gamecock Central, that's looking like a really good front seven and not just a, you know, oh, this is good for South Carolina standards, but really one of the better front sevens in the SEC, I could possibly say. Well, I mean, it, it, you could definitely make that argument. I mean, I know it wasn't a shutout. It was effectively a shutout. And the fact that Kentucky got those 84 yards and the seven points on that very last drive and, and total garbage time has to be frustrating from a statistical standpoint because you'd have to go back to 2006 to find the last time the South Carolina shut out an SEC opponent that was Mississippi State they won that game I think 15 to 0 which is kind of a weird score but I mean it, it doesn't happen a lot and that South Carolina was so dominant again I, I get it like they couldn't run the football Sawyer Smith wasn't giving Kentucky even a semblance of an added dimension of offense and so it's it's you know kind of unfortunate but that's still a group that with Sawyer Smith playing basically three quarters in the Florida game, they were able to score 20 points and, and Rose and Smoke are decent backs. But I mean, it was, it was a really, really smothering performance that has to have Carolina fans, especially going into the bye week not hopeful that they can necessarily beat Georgia, but all of a sudden Florida and Texas A&M, if the defense can, can keep opponents to about 20 points, which seven against Kentucky, 20 points allowed defensively against uh, Missouri and 24 points against North Carolina. You're right. I mean, that's starting to look like a more stifling unit that I, and, and sort of, I think what people were expecting more of at the beginning of the year. Yeah, it was a complete team effort too. I mean, they got pressure on over half of their um, pass rushes, which is just absolutely insane. The national average is about 26%. So they, against Kentucky got pressure at double the rate. Um, they had uh, PFF gave the defensive backs 
really the South Carolina team is in general, um, the best coverage grade of the weekend of any team in college football. Um, the linebackers played well. Um, you're really starting to see that as these younger guys start to get more experience playing, um, they're, you know, they're coming up and they're, um, the, the entire defense is really starting to become a um, more solid unit as the year goes on. So what were Jamie's numbers? I've been dying to know all afternoon. And you haven't told me. You haven't spoiled it. <laughs> no, I haven't spoiled it. Um, so from the game Saturday, he was targeted nine times for one reception and nine yards, um, which is obviously very good. Um, but it's more of a trend throughout the entire season. So um, these are all his numbers with his SEC rank. Um, so when he is being targeted, he's, he's been targeted 20 times this season um, and allowed five receptions of He's given up exactly one reception in each game for 65 yards. Among players that have played as many snaps as he has, those are all best in the SEC, not just among defensive backs or among um, freshmen, but among all SEC players. Um, That's the best, I guess, for quarterbacks, worst completion percentage, 25% um, against him of anybody in the SEC. Um, He's giving up a a reception every 40 40 coverage snaps in the slot, um, which is where he's playing most of his his time. He's played 116 snaps in the slot and given up three receptions for uh, 52 yards. Um, But the main thing that really surprised me is of the 65 yards he's given up on the season, 59 of them have come after the catch, Um, which if we're looking at, if we flip the script, and look at quarterbacks, we always look at um, what we call average depth of target or you know, average depth of reception, which is basically saying, okay, if you throw for 300 yards, it's different throwing for 300 yards on a bunch of screen passes and throwing for 300 yards when you're just throwing it up and bombing it every single play. And so as a quarterback, you would say, hey, it's much better to you know, average a uh, reception when you're throwing it, um, you know, an average of 10, 11 yards down the field, that would be what we'd say was really good versus, hey, I'm completing a bunch of passes one yard down the field. Um, So if we flip that back to defensive backs, defensive backs that give up receptions in the backfield or one yard downfield, two yards downfield, you know, it's not considered as as bad as if you give give up a reception 10 yards or 20 yards downfield. Um, And so Jamie Robinson on the season has given up six air yards. Um, five of those came against Kentucky. It was a nine-yard uh, pass, uh, five yards down the field, which was the deepest pass that he's given up all year. All of those ranks that I just talked about are first in the nation in everything. Um, that's average depth of uh, reception. That's um, air yards against. Um, he hasn't missed a tackle, so a lot of those yards after catch are literal screen passes that he's come up and made the tackle, um, but gives up you know maybe two, three, four yards. Um, and he's you know as we said, has been targeted 20 times, has only given up five receptions. So even his average um, length of reception um, is above national or is better than national average. And coupled with the fact that he's only giving up a reception um, every four times he's targeted, um, his average yards per target of just over three is once again better than anybody else in the country by about a yard. which is just incredible um, all the way across. <laughs> that's unbelievable. Yeah, and that's comprehensive. I was expecting like, oh, he graded out of whatever. But, I mean, that's a lot of different categories where he is excelling not just on the team or not just in the conference but in the country. That's that's unbelievable. Like I, I have been thinking that he was playing well, but 
would never have guessed that he was even the best in the secondary in that respect, much less the SEC or the country. So that's absolutely spectacular. And I'll give one more caveat to that. You know, his PFF grades have been good. They haven't been in the elite range or the, um, you know, anything like that. Um, But as a freshman coming in, that's, you know, pretty impressive to come in and just almost completely shut down his receiver. I remember his first play um, this season was he got burned on a double or a quick, you know, in and out move or something like that and gave up like a 15, 20 yard reception. That was the longest reception of the season he's given up. Um, and he's just been a completely, you know, locked down slot corner since then. Um, so, you know, with Jemias tra- uh, transferring out, he's going to get more playing time, but he was already going to get more playing time before any of that happened. Yeah, clearly. Wow. Um, elsewhere in the secondary, one of the other things that I saw you tweet out uh, either this morning or last night that was something that matched the eye test but was still impressive to see, uh, Israel Mukwamu, who has had, it, I, I think, probably his gaffes in coverage. He's He's gotten beat a couple of times. He got beat once in this game. I think, I mean, that was probably the longest pass that Kentucky completed. I don't know that. Just off the top of my head, it felt like it. Um, so he's had his, his I guess, slips in, in terms of coverage. But I didn't think I had seen him miss a tackle this season. He's an excellent tackler in space. Those long arms probably really help him when you're wrapping up a guy in space. And the numbers bear that out. Yeah, was it 26 tackles for Mukwamu without a miss this year? Yeah, he's got 26 tackles without a miss, which puts him second in the country behind a linebacker from Kansas. The name escapes me right now. I don't have it ahead of or in front of me. But um, his tackling grade from PFF is a 90.2. It's one of those that um, will continue to go up as he continues to make tackles. Um, his highest tackling grade for a single game has been like 84. Um, but, you know, the more tackles you make without a miss uh, just kind of boosts your uh, PFF tackling grade. His is um, among the top three in the country. How does that compare to his coverage grade? So his coverage grade has been a 64.5, which isn't bad. Um, South Carolina's had issues with they just haven't particularly had on the outside a lockdown corner where, you know, you just can't throw it at this guy. It's not going to work. I mean, Jamie Robinson is, you know, might be becoming that. And, you know, J.C. Horn and uh, Mukwamu have have the potential there. Um, but they've really, you know, struggled from a – they're really on an island. I mean, the, the safety play hasn't been good up until Saturday. Um, JT eBay and RJ Roderick both played well Saturday, um, and that's probably going to be a theme going forward. Um, but Mukwamu has been um, frustrated, I guess, frustrated a little bit. Um, I would say I would be frustrated if I were him. Um, he's given up more spectacular catches this season than I think I've seen from any player in like a full season. Um, you think back to North Carolina, he gave up a touchdown, the first of his career, actually, um, and only of his career, was a one-handed diving catch. Um, he had another one Saturday that was a you know a highlight reel catch that he gave up in pretty decent coverage um, in between, you know, good throw, too, in between him and the safety. Um, but he's given up 20, or he's been targeted 25 times this season, um, given up 16 catches. Um, so not the greatest stats in the world, but definitely um, – Nothing that's holding the defense back per se. It's not like he's a liability out there at corner. He's, um, you know, he's been pretty good. And again, you know, you you have one or two of those big catches that probably aren't going to be caught ten out of ten times if you know the uh, North Carolina wide receiver drops it or Kentucky's wide receiver um, Saturday drops that pass or whatever. Those numbers against him look a lot better. 
Yeah, not only the numbers, but sort of the perception. Because when you're thinking back on on those kinds of plays, those are the ones that stick out. Like, I, I can't tell you the five catches that were made when Jamie was in coverage because they were probably just normal catches. But you're right, all the ones that, not all of them, but a lot of the ones against uh, Israel have been kind of uh, spectacular. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the guy on the other side of the field because after a great freshman campaign, everyone was like, J.C. Horn, three years and he's gone. You know, best corner Carolina's had and however long, you know, Stephon Gilmore, you know, whatever comparison you want to make. And with corners, it's really weird. When you have a great year, oftentimes you don't see a lot of them. Uh, you know, like for, like Greedy Williams at LSU, he was amazing because nobody would ever throw at him like you're talking about. You're just totally locking down that side of the field. I feel like I haven't seen or heard a lot from JC, and I tend to think that's a good thing with a cornerback. But do the numbers through five games this season say that he has been having a above average or below average year compared to the expectations? So um, I, I think it really depends on what, you know, everyone's expectations were of him. I'll, I'll say this. His numbers this year overall um, are okay. So here are his overall numbers, and I'm going to take out um, the Alabama game because, you know, he's not going to be covering, you know, any number of potential first-round, second-round picks at wide receiver throughout the year. So here's his overall numbers this season. He's given up um, – 12 catches on 22 targets for 210 yards and two touchdowns. Um, So not the greatest. That's a 117 quarterback passer rating, which is, you know, not great for DD. But if you take out the Alabama game where he did get beat a couple times and, you know, very obviously did not have some of the safety help. um, I think of the quick pass to Devontae Smith where he, um, had outside leverage and gave up the slant. And then I think it was eBay maybe came up and just completely whipped on the tackle and turned a probably six to seven yard catch into a 54, 55 yard touchdown. Um, you give, if you take out the Alabama game, he's given up um, six catches on 14 targets for about, let me do this math in my head real quick, about 80 yards um, and no touchdowns. Um, he's never given up a touchdown to a wide receiver that didn't play for Alabama. Um, he's got five pass breakups this season. Um, so he's been good. Um, I think, you know, he's really hurt by his um, grade against Alabama, just did not grade out well. But, again, if you're having to play, I mean, we saw what Alabama did to Ole Miss over the weekend. If you're having to play Alabama, I don't think it's fair to expect a true sophomore cornerback to just go in there and dominate against those receivers that Alabama has. Yeah, no question, no question. But uh, yeah, that that's interesting. I guess when you take out the Alabama game, that's probably closer to what I would have expected. But I don't. The, the Devontae Smith touchdown does stand out, but even the rest of that game, I don't feel like he was the one necessarily getting beat a lot. And I guess that's probably why the numbers aren't worse. The one thing that does stand out to me, though, I texted uh, Chris and Wes about this this morning, and Chris took it very personally. But what is the deal with J.C. Horn not having an interception yet? He's been playing for a year and a half, and he's gotten unlucky on a couple. The one against North Carolina, I still can't figure out how he didn't catch. And then there was an opportunity against Kentucky, and he and Sherrod Green collided, which I think cost him um, that interception. But how how has this dude not gotten an interception yet? It's one of those, I think it'll come at some point, but um, I, I did see a tweet, and this is you know not necessarily my opinion, but I laughed. It said, it was basically saying that the son of one of um, – the best NFL wide receivers of the past 30 years um, can't catch. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I don't know if I would go with that. Um, you know, the reason he's at DB is not because he can't catch. The reason is at DB is because he's a very good um, outside cornerback. But I did laugh at that. Um, and it'll come at some point. Um, 
he's, he's definitely one that he's going to be in position to make some interceptions. Um, he's just kind of got to get the first one to get it off his back. I, I think uh, he and Mukwamu uh, joke a lot about the fact that uh, Mukwamu has two already in his career and um, JC doesn't have one, but uh, he'll come at some point. Um, I don't know when that'll happen, but you know, he'll be targeted enough um, to be in position to have one. And I would expect that to happen sooner rather than later. Yeah. And if he's averaging a pass breakup a game, you know, he's getting there. It's it, at this point, it just kind of stands out as, as more of a statistical quirk than anything. Cause you're talking about a guy that again, like, even if through five games, even the Alabama game wasn't spectacular, this is still a guy that's a very, very good cornerback prospect in the SEC and around the country. It's just kind of funny that he hasn't been able to, to get his mitts on a ball yet. Um, on the other side of the ball, Carolina was only able to score 24 points. It feels like they should have scored, I don't know, 35 or 38. And I don't know if if there are any sort of advanced metrics that work sort of like soccer has expected goals, where just based on the amount of opportunities you create, you can you know, mathematically project how many goals a team should score. I don't know if there's exactly something like that for football, um, but I'm guessing there were a lot of good performances on the offensive line in terms of run blocking, the running backs. I imagine there were some good receiver performances as well. Um, but what stood out in terms of the numbers that explains how South Carolina only scored 24 instead of into the 30s? Well, first of all, I really wish that there was an expected points for um, for football. Um SP Plus has some, um, but they have gone away since Bill Connolly has moved to ESPN, have gone away from weekly projections and showing that, and so it doesn't really um, – they, they don't give that out anymore, which is frustrating because it was excellent last year, and I use that. Um, I do like the expected goals for soccer. I you know, use those charts all the time when I'm watching uh, Tottenham play. Um, usually it's kind of sad. <laughs> I was going to say, lately it's been very sad. <laughs> actual goals, but um, – but, yeah, actually, you, it's not in the run-blocking game. Um, there wasn't anything that stood out, actually. Um, Jalen Nichols graded out the worst in run-blocking at a, a um, 45, and Javon Gwynn graded out the best at a 62. Um, everybody else was in between that, like, 58 to 62 range. But South Carolina, once again, their best two offensive players were Tavian Feaster and Rico Dowell. Um, Tavian Feaster had a 91.7 offensive grade, um, including a 92.8 in the running game, which is the second highest game grade for um, any South Carolina um, offensive player this season behind, you know, Kevin Harris's spectacular game mm-hmm. against Charleston Southern. Um, and then Rico Dowdle came in just behind at 79.6 um, offensive grade. Um, so I-, I was talking to a couple guys this morning about how, um, honestly, the difference in run blocking along the offensive line between the worst and the best teams is not a lot. Usually it amounts to about maybe a yard before contact. Um, and that's we're talking about the average um, FCS team to, you know, a Wisconsin or one of those teams with just a dominant offensive line. Um, so if you had to pick between the two of I want some really good run blocking um, offensive linemen and some really good running backs. You always want the running backs. Um, another one of those advanced metrics, I think football outsiders uses it. Um, it's called uh, blocking yards for the run game. And it basically considers anything over an eight yard run to be completely running back. Um, so, you know, the offensive line will open up a hole, but nine times out of 10, if you run for eight yards or more on a single play, it's because of the running back and less so because of the offensive line. Hmm. Um, so South Carolina only has to be average on the offensive line in the running game for its backs to be really good. And once again, um, Feaster and Dowdle were just fantastic. Um, 
against Kentucky. They both average over five yards after contact per carry. Um, you know, Feaster, I can remember just throwing guys all over the place in the end of the um, in the fourth quarter when he started getting more snaps. Um, and Dowdle again had another good game there. So um, really, South Carolina's offensive line just needs to be average um, in the running game. Yeah, just keep doing whatever they did on on Saturday because that was an outstanding performance. Uh, the other side of the offensive line grade, I guess, is the pass blocking. Carolina gave up three sacks, and I, I don't know exactly how they were credited. I know Jalen Nichols was just straight up beat one time. There, that was a, probably a pretty clear cut one. There was one where Kentucky ran uh, a stunt, and then Calvin Taylor looped around, and it looked like one that maybe they would have passed off. So I don't know if that gets if that sack gets credited to Jordan Rhodes for not you know, collecting Calvin Taylor on the pass off for Donnell Stanley, who was like the last person to touch him. And then there was one that looked like a coverage sack. Um, is, is that reflected in the pro football focus numbers? Because I know they will distinguish, you know, a, an offensive lineman basically giving up pass or uh, um, pass rush versus uh, a running back or a tight end and sometimes even the quarterback. Yeah, so I've got the pressure stats right here. And overall, the pressure stats weren't bad. Um, they gave up nine total pressures. They only were credited with um, giving up two sacks. And I'm, my assumption there is that the coverage sack was so much a coverage sack, they just considered it a run for um, uh, Ryan Helensky. I think it may have been starting him starting outside the pocket or something and eventually getting dragged down. But um, of those, Jalen Nichols was beat you know, several times. They gave him both sacks and um, a couple hurries on the play, which isn't you know out of the ordinary for a guy in his first start to give up. Um, some stats for the or some pressures, but the rest of the offensive line was really good. Um, Hutcherson was given up one. Um, Jordan Rhodes was credited with two pressures, and then Kyle Markway was um, given a pressure. So you, I mean, that's basically three of the five offensive linemen were excellent in the passing game um, as far as pass blocking goes. And um, I think it was Perry Orth that told me at one point, if you have pressure coming from one distinct location you're fine as a quarterback because you kind of know it's coming. You know, Ryan Holinsky can say, okay, I know I've got a freshman over there at right tackle. Um, if pressure comes, I know it's going to be from that direction, and I can kind of drift off to the left and, um, you know, continue to play normally. Perry Orth was one who, you know, always told me if you have pressure coming from multiple directions, then you're just kind of stuck as a quarterback. <laughs> but if you've got one spot that you kind of feel it coming, whether that's one really strong defensive lineman or – um, maybe a weaker point in the offensive line, um, then you know that's something that doesn't affect you as much as it is when you have no idea where the pressure is coming from. And Jalen Nichols is going to improve, I think, um, but definitely a rough game for his first start. Um, but also as an offensive lineman, you know, all it takes is if he had five pressures, he could have played. He played um, 76 snaps, and he could have really played well for 71 of those. And if he gives up those five pressures, it's a bad game. Um, so he'll improve and he'll continue to get better because I definitely saw some places where he was very good um, and he's just got to continue to get more consistent in that. And for Ryan, I think he can help his offensive lineman on, I think, at times by getting the ball out a little bit quicker. Uh, like you said, they were only credited with two sacks, so the the one that we all thought was a coverage sack, I mean, was was very much uh, a coverage sack, so that was borne out. And Ryan wasn't asked to do a whole lot, 15-27, 140 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. Wasn't asked to do a lot, didn't do a whole lot. How did this week's grade compare to the Missouri game? So he was much, much better than the Missouri game. Um, I'll tell you what's interesting, and this is you know sometimes an anomaly in the uh, PFF grades and then also sometimes kind of shows a bigger point. Um, his grade was pretty on par with the Alabama game. Um, he was graded out as a 58 um, 
he graded out a little bit, you know, pretty positively in the running game, actually. Um, he, they had two zone reads, and I think he handed off once, and he um, kept it to, you know, nobody expected him to keep it for about a, you know, 12, 13-yard gain. Um, but he graded out at about a 58, which is comparable to his um, Alabama score, which, of course, seemed from the eye, to, you know, from at least the numbers-wise, um, he seemed to be much better against Alabama than he was against Kentucky. Um, but he made some big-time throws. Uh, remember, two when he was moving to his uh, left and throwing against his body, I think. No, move, yeah, moving to his left and throwing against his body. Um, he made two really, really big throws on the sideline. Um, and that's one of those things, if he can become a little bit more consistent, um, I mean, the, the accuracy is there, the arm is there, the leadership's there. Um, people have to keep in mind that the last time a South Carolina freshman played this early in the season was probably Todd Ellis as a redshirt freshman back in, what, the late 80s. Um, so, you know, Ryan Holinsky is going to continue to improve. He's already at the point where he he's played as many games as Jake Bentley had his freshman year, like the second to last game of the season. So he's got, you know, half a season to continue to improve. And, um, you know, the potential is there, and you can see it every week. And if he continues to become a little bit more consistent every week, he'll, you know, he will end up being um, pretty, you know, Pretty solid quarterback in South Carolina, I would say. Yeah, well, that, that's really interesting. The numbers were that close to Alabama. I figured they would be better than Missouri. I wasn't sure how much so, but I guess if you're a Carolina fan, something to, to take real solace in. Um, I mean, just just continued progress for that guy. And, and I guess the other thing that it says is his elbow is probably feeling a lot better than it was against Missouri. We know he actually practiced this full week, and now whatever residual you know elbow rust there is, he's got two weeks to uh, to finish healing from that, and then hopefully we'll be. Um, I, I guess back on, you know, Alabama, Kentucky level performance against Georgia because they're going to need that and they're probably going to need even a little bit more if they want to pull off that upset. But we have a couple of weeks to talk about that uh, before I let you go, because as always, I, I keep you longer than I than I promise I would. And I know you got to go uh, get back to your nap or, or sleep or whatever you need to do to get better. Um, were there any other numbers you wanted to get to that we didn't touch on today? Um, so I think next week we'll talk a little bit more about this since we'll have the bye week, but it's getting to the point in the season where we can actually use uh, season grades. Um, and those are kind of coming more into fruition, um, as we go on. So I'll just, you know, give people, um, a little tease of next week. Um, South Carolina's best defenders right now, um, obviously Javon Kinlaw, um, he's, you know, really so far above anybody really in the SEC. He's just dominating the season. Um, I say that every week. That's my weekly Javon Kinlaw plug. Um, but number two and number three might surprise some people, including a very highly touted freshman that we haven't heard a lot about this year. Um, in terms of PFF grade, has been excellent this season and will continue to get better. Mm, I love that. I love a juicy tease. Will, thank you so much. Great stuff as always. Um, hope you feel better soon. And if y'all don't follow Will on Twitter at WHelms21 or read him on Gamecock Central, you should. Also be sure to check out his website, his company, prepra.com. It's prep-ra.com. And you do, I mean, it's pretty much, is it fair to say it is comprehensive prep for athletes that aspire to continue participating in athletics and participating as students in college at the next level? Absolutely. I mean, unless somebody's just a, a you know four or five star recruit, um, the academics are really what's going to be able to um, get more get athletes more looks at the next level. Um, you know, teams that are at a you know lower division, maybe um, FBS non Power Five teams, 
um, are always looking at those, you know, academics, those SAT scores, and are more willing to take um, a quarterback with, say, a 1,200 SAT than they are a uh, 1,000 SAT um, because they have to be so much more specific with scholarships. So, um, you know, especially SAT um, core GPA, which a lot of people don't know about, um, I talk a lot about that. Um, that's really what's going to be able to get kids um, more looks at the next level. Um, that, and then of course the film and everything, which um, I also do a little bit with. All the good sustainable skills that have helped Ryan Fitzpatrick have a long NFL career. I mean, like the the biggest thing for Ryan Fitzpatrick, other than being in the NFL now for a long time and having a great start to last season, is that he aced the wonderlick. So, um, you know, don't sleep on the on the studies, y'all. And the SAT is right around the corner. You do some prep for that. You got some people signed up for that already, and are still accepting people that need any help with uh, with SAT prep. So check that out, prep-ra.com. We'll get better soon. We'll talk to you next week. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tristan. Thanks again to Will. Don't forget to check out his website, prepra.com. That's prep-ra.com. Before we get out of here, we got to get to some of the best from social media for this weekend, including a very best... The winner this week won't actually be from just from social media, but it went viral on social media, and it's just a good opportunity to relive what was a very, very fun moment for Gamecock fans. But we'll get things started with a familiar face, Kev Roche, who tweeted after freshman linebacker Jamar Brown forced a fumble with his foot. He was sent flying by either a running back or a tight end, somebody that had stayed in to chip him while he was bearing down on the quarterback. He went flying. His foot hit the football, knocked it out. Kentucky would eventually fall on the fumble, but it led to Kev tweeting, Jamar Brown roundhouse kicked a football out of a player's hand on Saturday night, and I personally appreciate his willingness to try new things. A bold and daring technique, probably the start of a new defensive movement slash revolution. No big deal. Um, I'm recording this on September 30th, and tomorrow is the start of my favorite month of the year, October, and it's my goal this year to watch as many horror movies as I can in the month of October. I would love to say that I'll watch 31, one for every day of October, but realistically, I'm not going to do that. So I'm trying to put together a list of 15 to 20. And by the way, if y'all have suggestions, please let me know. You can tweet at me at Pearson Fowler or comment them on the thread on Gamecock Central. But I tweeted out my current list of about 11 movies looking for a couple more suggestions to round out the list of what scary movies I should watch in October. And Oscar replied, how about the Missouri game? With a drum kit emoji for the, um, but um, so I'll just do the effect there. Thank you so much for that, Oscar. From the NFL, the Miami Dolphins seem to be trying to set new records for the worst team of all time. Their point differential through the first three weeks of the season was historically bad, tied with only a couple of teams from like the 20s that I haven't even heard of that aren't real teams anymore. And so, of course, every couple of years, there's a truly terrible NFL team and people start to speculate, oh, Could Alabama beat the Jacksonville Jaguars? That was the one from back in the day. Apparently there was some conversation had on social media about whether or not the Clemson Tigers could beat Miami Dolphins, to which Brad Crawford wrote Saturday night that the college football team that could beat the Miami Dolphins is tied with the Tar Heels entering the fourth quarter, dot, dot, dot. Always appreciate any jokes at Clemson's expense, even if they did go on to win that football game. Uh, DC, David Kloninger from the Post and Courier, writing from the press box during South Carolina's game against Kentucky on Saturday, said that he just requested Joseph Charlton for postgame media availability and was told that Charlton might not be available because he may be icing his leg. At that point, he had seven points for 344 yards. He would finish the game with nine punts and average 51 yards per punt. All right, last one before we get to our winner. This is a nice combo. 
somebody tweeted out a video of Atlanta Falcons head coach Dan Quinn ahead of their matchup with the Tennessee Titans, which they did go ahead and lose. But the quote was that this week we need to beat Tennessee and only Tennessee. That was the only focus for the Atlanta Falcons, uh, to which the Georgia State Panthers replied, beating Tennessee is fun, dot, dot, dot. Trust us, sunglasses emoji. Just beautiful. Checks all the boxes, combining NFL and college content, taking a shot at Tennessee. It's pretty much everything you want to see out of a great tweet. And on any other weekend, the Georgia State Panthers' official Twitter account would have won the week. But on a week when South Carolina ended a five-game losing streak to Kentucky and Will Muschamp was in an unreasonably good mood after the game, it can be nobody other than the head ball coach responding to this question from Gamecock Central's own Colin Taylor. Well, I'm just curious, what prompted the glasses tonight? And I guess is that going to tradition yeah. that's going to stick around? Uh, yeah. Well, you know what? I'm getting old, and I and I can't read anymore, especially at night. It's been a shitty fall. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I got more gray hair than I've ever had. My wife doesn't like hanging around losers. I've been losing, so I mean, it ain't been good. You know. Mic drop. Although I think he went on to finish the press conference, but we'll just leave it at a mic drop right there. That'll do it for us this week on the Get Cocky podcast. Be sure to tune in to ACP, where Wes and Chris have their no-huddle instant reaction to the South Carolina-Kentucky game. And Carolina's off this week, so Get Cocky will also be taking a break, but we will be back next week with plenty more ahead of South Carolina and Georgia. So y'all enjoy the bye week. Enjoy There's a great slate of college football. So take this opportunity to watch some other teams that aren't South Carolina, and it should be a really fun week in college football. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Why should you visit Worlds of Fun? Do it because less time planning means more time for this. Do it to take a one-day family vacation. Do it to catch a serious case of the giggles together. And of course, do it to eat a funnel cake the size of your face. Because here at Worlds of Fun, doing something just for the fun of it is all the reason you need. Get tickets as low as $39.99 online. Worlds of Fun, for the fun of it. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.